Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Kent Wu. Kent is a serial entrepreneur who was the founder and CEO of Airsplat.com, a company he recently exited, which is the largest airsoft retailer in the U.S., Airsoft, for those of you who don't know, is a sport similar to paintball in which participants eliminate opponents by hitting each other with spherical non-metal pellets launched via replica weapons called airsoft guns. Airsoft technology is used by many law enforcement agencies and military units for force-on-force training drills. After his exit, Kent recently launched his new company, which is called Milk and Eggs, which is a farm-direct artisanal fresh fruit delivery service, which is rapidly expanding in Southern California. He shares with us today his exciting entrepreneurial journey and key insights and lessons he learned along the way. Let's jump right into the episode. Hi, Kent. How are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the Jay Kim Show. We're excited to have you. Likewise. It's uh, great to be here. Great to be speaking with you again, Jay. It's been a while since we caught up last, but um, maybe for the audience, you can give us a quick intro. Who uh, is Kent Wu and what do you do for a living? Sure. So I guess you could call me a serial entrepreneur. Started my first business in 2001. We did relatively well uh, for about 15 years. We made it into Inc. 500 um, about I think four or five years in a row, and also made it into internet retailers' largest 500 internet e-commerce. So I started that back in 2001, exited that or sold it in uh, 2015. Okay. So um, it was about close to 15 years. Nice. So you're a serial entrepreneur. Your first business, you uh, 15 years, you were very successful, exited, and now you're working on your second business. So let's just run through what the first business was, and then we can just talk about that for a bit. Sure, by means. So the first business was called Airsplat, and we sold airsoft guns, paintball guns. Um, essentially, we focused on uh, shooting sports. So uh, anything tactical, anything shooting, it was predominantly male, mm-hmm. but it was uh, a lot of fun for a lot of, I guess, a lot of us, including, including the people inside the company. But right. that, that's what we focused on. So airsoft guns... Maybe you could give a little bit of background on that because, so for me personally, I'm not really a, I don't know, gamer or, you know, someone that, that actually does this type of sport, but, you know, obviously paintball is a lot of people have heard of. And I think that I've, I've even tried paintball a few times myself. Airsoft is something that I'm not as familiar with. So maybe for our listeners that might not be familiar with what airsoft is, you can give us a little quick primer on what airsoft is. Sure, sure. By all means. So airsoft is is essentially the little plastic pellets, six millimeters in diameter, and and the big thing is uh, that they really enjoy the military simulation aspect of of the sport. Um, so there's a lot of role playing, um, a lot of sportsmanship, a lot more shooting, less so much 
it's very strategic, whereas paintball is much more tactical and what they call speedball, where it's it's a force on force. We sold both, so we were we're intimately familiar with both both sides of the of the equation. Okay, so now the, is there a lot of crossover in that community, or are they kind of seen as competitors? Like, okay, you're a paintballer, I'm an airsofter. Like, how does that yes. how does that break down? That's a great question. So initially, it was not a lot of crossover, and paintballers looked down upon airsofters um, until maybe I want to say about 20, you know, the early 2013, 2011. Airsoft actually was on the same level as paintball, at least in popularity. Okay. So at that point, there were people that had transitioned both ways. And people kind of, it's like skateboarding and, and BMXing or biking. It just depended on, on the users. There were some, there's a certain segment that, that transferred both ways. And there were certain people that were just diehard, uh, you know, one side of the, of the very, very polar, one side of the, of the right. spectrum. Right. Okay. So, so now let's, let's uh, take a step back now. So you said you started that business in 2001. So how, how did you get into this sort of business? I mean, as someone that not only is not really a gamer and, and, you know, really sort of educated on, you know, paintball or, or airsoft, it's even. It seems even more uh, foreign to me how how you would even get into a business like this. So, were you a airsoft paintball enthusiast? Is that how you got into it? Tell us a little bit about your early days as an entrepreneur. Sure. So initially, I was not an avid player um, on either paintball or airsoft. Um, I had played both once or twice. Really, what what spawned the company was. In 2001, which is when I started the company, this was, if some of you guys may know, um, some people may remember, have been around long enough to remember this, but that was during the dot-com bubble that had kind of blown up. And there was a minor recession during that that period, specifically in the e-commerce space. I had gone to school specifically for, it wasn't computer programming or computer science. It was more um, cognitive, uh, user interface design you know, kind of somewhat peripheral to uh, computer science. But, uh, but I still ended up being in the, in the IT industry. So okay. the, the recession affected me, and I, I essentially couldn't find a, a new job. At the time, I was AOL Time Warner. So I was, I was there for, I was in the You've Got Pictures department. Oh, uh, wow. You know, it's, it's this, uh, it's, the un, it's the forgotten child of, of You've Got Mail. <laughs> So you've got yeah, mail right. and they've got that you've got pictures and they, they had a cooperative partnership with Kodak. And essentially, you've got pictures. It was a second tab over under a you've got mail. So it was there for a while. Yeah, no, it was it was fun. It was it was, it was pretty cool. I was there for a short time and, and the recession came around and they essentially closed our office. Uh, we were down in Irvine, Orange County, mm-hmm. and they closed our entire branch, their, our entire department and was gone. Right. So I spent a few months looking for a new job. And my decision at the time was, okay, I'm going to give this a good try. And, you know, out of necessity, I, I can't sit around idly forever. So, you know, after I told myself after four months, if I found nothing, then I would start and just start my own business because I had really had no choice. Right. So I remember two months into that, a friend had come to me and said, hey, have you tried this thing called Airsoft? It's really cool. It's just like paintball, but it's better. Mm-hmm. So looked at it and said, okay, well, this looks pretty cool. So let's try selling this. I mean, this is a 2001. Yahoo was the number one search engine. You know, it was a very different time. Uh, Google was just starting. You know, eBay was huge. Right. So we, I, I formed a company and, and started selling online um, on eBay and as well as on our own website. 
So now, when your friend approached you, was it, it was specifically like, okay, let's try to sell this? Or was it like, hey, have you ever heard of this sport? Let's try to play it. <laughs> yeah, it was more of the latter, actually. Believe it or not, it was, it was more about the, let's go play. Yeah. But, you know, in my mind, I'm sitting there going, I got nothing to do. I mean, I, I, I've been playing as great and all, but I, I got to do something with my life here, right? This is, uh, I got to right. find a job or I got to find a career. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like there was opportunity, at least in this space. It seemed like it was early on enough and and you'll hear uh, me say this a lot but I, I feel like i was very fortunate very lucky to kind of been at the right place at the right time um, notice the opportunity and, and really just take advantage of it so um so we did we did really relatively well yeah so let's talk also about um when you so you you started off working for a large corporate corporation and uh that was you know, obviously what felt safe and felt like the right thing to do. You were based in California and working at, you know, one of the largest sort of tech companies back then. How was your parents and family with you during this time, right? When you, obviously they were probably happy when you joined AOL, Time Warner, and probably worried, concerned when when, uh, you lost your job. And then during that transition time, when you said, you know, at some point you were put a stake in the ground and you said, I'm going to do this entrepreneurship thing. How did that conversation go with your parents? That's a great question. So my parents have always been very supportive and, and to some extent that they kind of could see the bigger picture. So they knew, you know, two years after graduating, you know, you're, you know, early twenties, you're still very early in your career. Right. You know, they both had MBAs uh, and I, I mean, this is one of my big regrets is not getting it, getting an MBA myself. But, mm-hmm. you know, I always told them I wanted to go back and get an MBA. But they always actually uh, discouraged me from doing so, saying that you could always go back anytime you wanted to. So go do something now, uh, anything, just go do something. So when I said I wanted to start a, start a business, you know, they, you know, talked to me and asked me if I was sure about it, that it was endless hours and that it was very hard work and that it was... Uh, sometimes unrewarding and sometimes very relentless and sometimes very punishing. And that if I did want to do this, that I would have to commit to it at least with a full effort and and not a half-hearted, you know, do it for six months and then, you know, bail. Right. So, I mean, they had that conversation and and as long as we had that conversation and we were kind of all on the same page, they were like, go for it. I took essentially, uh, I had $15,000 from what I had saved up from AOL Time Warner borrowed $5,000 from my mom. So I had $20,000 seed and I started the company. It's essentially it. <laughs> That's amazing. So that, it sounds like your parents are actually quite supportive. And, and that's, I, I think that, you know, I think that's for, it's for, it's fortunate of you that they were supporting you. But I think that a lot of people sort of, they fantasize about becoming an entrepreneur because it's the cool thing to do. And, and even more so now, I mean, entrepreneurship, that word gets thrown around like, like crazy and everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. It's so cool to be an entrepreneur, but not, not a lot of people actually know before they start how difficult it is to be an entrepreneur. And so when your mom or your dad told you that this is something you have to commit to, you can't just bail after six months. I think that is sound advice. And the fact that they were able to, I think when it comes to a lot of Asian, first generation Asian parents into the States, 
they were entrepreneurs, but it wasn't called entrepreneurship. It was called survival, right? Correct. It's like we, you know, they, they're very, a lot of them are very successful entrepreneurs and grinded it out and did everything they could to make their business successful. And they just called it life, right? So I think this notion of entrepreneurship is quite interesting because it's, it's become people romanticize about being an entrepreneur. But yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really weird because, uh, you know, I, essentially been an entrepreneur this whole time for the last 15 years or 16 years or so. And I've mm-hmm. noticed that transition. I want to say probably in the mid, uh, you know, probably 2005, 2006, when that transitioned over and people started even talking about, you know, the small businesses, the the startups, the, the you know, and, and that was even prior to that, it probably wasn't even, at least in my mind, it wasn't even a topic of discussion. It was, it was interesting because back then, even for me in 2001, even opening a, a credit card merchant account or processing account was, I mean, they made us jump through hoops and hurdles. It was unheard of. Right. Like, who are you? Why do you want to, why do you want to process credit cards for? Like, you know, and, and why would you want to? It was, it was, it was a little foreign back then. It is, it is interesting to see how uh, the pendulum has swung in, in such opposite direction. Yeah. And I think part of that is because it is now easier to start a business than it ever has been because of the internet and all the commoditization of these serv- ancillary service providers and services that are required to start a business. Absolutely. You can literally jump online and do it in a few minutes, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, I, I think that it doesn't necessarily make the entrepreneurship journey any easier, maybe at the initial uh, outset, but, you know, to be a successful entrepreneur and to really be, you know, deserve that title, I think it's, uh, it's a lot harder than most people think. Yes, no, I can agree more. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So let's continue on the journey. So you, you had twenty thousand dollars seed, and you basically, what was the business model? You basically started uh, sourcing the equipment and selling it uh, stateside. Yes, correct. So source the merchandise, listed on eBay. So for a while, we used eBay. Kind of again, this at the time, I think eBay was you know middle nineties. So at 2001, eBay and Yahoo were probably at their peak. Um, mm-hmm. So at the time, eBay, we used eBay as a kind of a launching pad. Uh, we had our own e-commerce, but that was just, I mean, that was, at the time, it was, it was, it was a little odd to buy things online. At least it wasn't mainstream yet. Right. Uh, buying on eBay was a little more acceptable, but buying online in general was not. So we, we used eBay as a launching pad and we did, you know, we, we did some marketing. Um, we were... One thing we keyed into, or I keyed into very early on, was um, uh, Google AdWords. Uh, we were right. one of the beta testers um, at the time. We were, the, you know, one of the first ones to use it, and we picked up on it relatively well, and it, it drove a lot of traffic to us, and it did very good for us. Um, same thing for a couple other products that don't exist anymore. But yeah, we we were very good at leveraging um, some of the tools and some of the the the, the resources that were were you know that existed at the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, with with limited budget and you're bootstrapped, you really have to be creative and just think of of ways to to use that little bit of uh, you know resource and leverage that to to make an impact. Okay, so two questions now, Kent. Was there a point A that you were going to toss in the towel ever in the early days? And then the second part of that question is: At what point did you feel like, okay, we're good now, we're going to be successful? <laughs> Big questions, I know. <laughs> so the first one you said, was there ever a point when I felt we were going to tap out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So I get asked this question a lot mm-hmm. in general, just from friends. Uh, and you know, it's, it's really interesting. And I think unless you've uh, run your own business or had your own business, you, you don't fully appreciate this, but uh, you know, I had a friend that worked at Microsoft and, and Bill Gates would say this over and over again. And, and, and I really, I think it's very, very true. And even at that time, you know, Microsoft was, was huge. Um, you know, this is a uh, early 2000, you know, 2003, 2004. There's never a moment when you feel the company is stable. There's always some variables that you feel that could catch you off guard. Um, and mm. over, almost, you know, proverbially overnight, but essentially overnight could, could put you out of business. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's always that. And believe it or not, from experience, I've, I've learned this re- reflex that anytime I feel comfortable and complacent that the business mm. is doing well, to be very alert and careful um, and be on the lookout for anything that's going to pop up and, and, and catch me off guard because it seems to always do that. It seems that that seems to be inevitable. Every time I feel yeah. comfortable, something to side comes out of left field and, and, and totally takes me like aback. And I'm just, uh, I'm a little, uh, you know, a little out of bearing for, for a second. Yeah, I think that's good instinct. Uh, that, like you said, there's so many successful entrepreneurs uh, echo that sort of advice. And um, yeah, I mean, essentially, my two questions were answered in one answer, which is basically nearly every day, or there could be something wrong. Uh, maybe not to the point of tapping out or tossing in the towel, but you know, that's just that's just part of biz- building a business. And then at the same time, you should never rest on your laurels and get too complacent or comfortable. Absolutely. So this leads us to actually uh, the next sort of segment of your your journey, which is you recently had an exit. So (laughs) congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. I I, I guess after you sold the company, you could finally relax for a bit. Tell us about, tell us a little bit about the exit, why you decided to sell uh, your your baby uh, that you grew from for 15 years from your house with, you know, $20,000 $20,000 of seed ca- capital. Why did you finally decide that you it was time to sell? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and thank you for calling it uh, my baby. You know, I, <laughs> I, I used to firmly believe in that. Um, but, you know, like 12 or 13 years into it, you, you kind of, okay, I think she's old enough now that, uh, that, that <laughs> you don't refer to it as a baby, your baby anymore. You know, it's not really yours sure. anymore. But, and really, sure. believe it or not, that's how I felt. Around 12 or 13 years into it, we were large enough that really I was working on strategic level stuff, um, bigger picture financing, business development kind of things, uh, very little operational matters. Mm-hmm. So it really felt like it was not so much, uh, it was very mature at least at that point. Um, and it felt like it was almost, I don't want to say cruise control because it never really is on cruise control, but at least operationally, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Right. You do have to worry about potentially, you know, who knows, legislation may pass or something may shift the, you know, do a whole paradigm shift and, and essentially you could be out of business. So right. for me, my, my, my role at the time was to look uh, longer term, bigger picture stuff, strategic, and make sure that we were on track and that we didn't get caught off guard by some of these things. But yeah, about 13 years into it, I had actually handed the operations off to my partner. Mm-hmm. So for the last two years, I, I was really focused on uh, working on other things. It was it was either doing other verticals that were complementary, or 
flat out starting a, a new company. Right. So we tried a couple of verticals that did well, but they never really took off, took off. And what happened was in the last year, you know, the industry got really mature. At the time, Airsoft was actually larger than Paintball. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, Airsoft overtook Paintball and, you know, it was mature and it had reached saturation and we were doing great. And for me, I was like, okay, good. To some extent, I was like, okay, so what's next? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we make sure we continue pushing forward? Um, you look at companies like um, Johnson & Johnson, you look at Google, you see how much stuff they're continually innov- innovating and pushing out. Right. You know, so my thought was, okay, there has to be something else. So essentially, I got, I got a little homesick. I was a little, I was, uh, was kind of like, okay, where's uh, the, the growth potential? Right. And es- essentially, that's when I decided, okay, I think it's time to exit. And I think it's time to start something new. Mm-hmm. So that happened about, you know, uh, about 15, 14 years into it. So, so we, we set our position ourselves to, to be acquired. And we did very well with, my partner did very well with running the business while I handled basically the, the acquisition and the sell-off. And then uh, while they were doing that and while we were working that out, I, I started on the new business as well. So it was kind of a one hand on, one hand off. Uh, but there was never any time when I had, oh, I have nothing to do. I sold my business and I'm just going to sit back and relax. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that unfortunately never happened. And, and, and believe it or not, my wife complains about that all the time, um, that there, was no, there wasn't a break somehow in between there. Yeah, I mean, I think that you at least deserve uh, a night out with your wife or a beach vacation or something like that. I mean, yeah. That's 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 a great story though, Kent. I mean, I I'm I'm happy for you. I'm I'm you know again, congrats on the exit. So at, after you made the decision that you wanted to exit, then you act basically. You said you positioned your company to be acquired. So it was just literally just be- very strategically approaching potential uh, companies that would buy your company. Was that was that basically your strategy, or was there already people that were interested? So exit. Exit is actually pretty tricky. Um, exit involves both knowing what the industry is like, knowing the potential players or the potential buyers, and then usually you actually have to change your business model just slightly mm-hmm. to accommodate a smooth transition or potentially make yourself more palatable or, or more enticing for, for the buyer. So right. we spent about a year kind of wrapping up on that and, and gearing up for that. And that's... It's, part of the the staging or the ramping up for the exit and then going to potential buyers and suitors and and, and having discussions with them. Right. And was there any sort of trailing agreement where you had to stay on uh, or your partner had to stay on or the employees? They absorbed about 80% of our employees and then they kept my partner on for six months. Okay. And that was, that was part of the deal. So that worked out really well, actually. And so it, it freed me up to allow me to, to start the new business and, and, ramp up on the new business and then actually start it once uh, we exited. So that was worked out perfectly, actually. Amazing. Okay. And so, yeah. So tell us about the new business. Sure. Um, so uh, <laughs> the new business is called Milk and Eggs. It's milkandeggs.com. And essentially, we're a online farmer's market. We're, we're a farm-to-door a la carte. And it's more than just farm-to-door because really we're artisanal foods. So it's all farms, artisanal foods, everything local and sustainable, aggregated and delivered to your door. Wow. So, okay. Well, so first of all, how did you come up with this idea? <laughs> and secondly, I feel like it's not exactly the easiest segment to, to, to go after. 
Oh, wow. Yes, you absolutely hit it on the head. Yeah. The one, yes, uh, it's, I'm going to answer them in reverse order. Yes, it's not the easiest. In fact, it's the hardest because we actually only do perishables. So, you know, 90% of our products are perishable and perishables are the single hardest commodity to handle both because of the temperature requirements as well as the perishability right. of, the, of the commodity. So the goal was intentional. What happens is if you can do something that's very difficult, but you're, it's a niche and you're very good at it, you can always go downstream and you can always do the right. easier things. Right. So we, we by intention, are, are doing that space because it's, one, the hardest. Two, it's the least competitive because it's the hardest. that has the largest barrier to entry. And three, you can always move downstream after that. So you right. can always bring on the easier stuff to, to, to carry. So how we came up with that, that was actually pretty interesting. So it's, it's, it's a culmination of, of several things. But to put it, make it easy, essentially, uh, is I saw the opportunity. Um, I saw the trend. And uh, we, I, I reverse engineered a way to be competitive or offer a value. Um, in that space right so that that's very generic terms <laughs> well i mean it's it, it, it makes sense though right i mean when you see it, it's almost like when you see something that's working but you but you think that you can do it better <laughs> yeah absolutely correct yeah. right so you see people doing it or you see companies doing it and you see companies trying to do it uh, you see walmart first uh three or four years ago in their super centers and then target doing it two or three years ago uh, about two years ago, and then you see the farmers markets, and then you see the trend towards natural foods, and then you figure out, okay, where can I be competitive in this space and offer something of value to consumers, or where, where, what are they missing in this kind of bigger puzzle? And you come up with a, and then you come up with a business model, and then you test it, and then you go to, go to market. Wow, amazing! I, you know, I, I love hearing entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, that basically exactly what you said it's it's like we actually picked a difficult market to go into and tackle you know and i think that there's a lot of crossover when you as a businessman and an entrepreneur the the skills of running a business no matter what sort of niche or or segment or industry it's in there's a there's a lot of things that are just central to doing business and i i love hearing stories about entrepreneurs that just find uh, a niche that they can potentially dominate and just go after it, you know, because most people would be like, okay, come on, not another artisanal food delivery type service, but Hey, you know what, if you can, if you can find that and dominate it, then, then it can be extremely lucrative. Right. And the thing about artisanal products is that they have, it's, they have such a strong customer loyalty when you build something or create a product that has artisanal value. Once a customer, always a customer. That sort of thing, right? Agree, absolutely. And not only that, but you have no one, you have very little competition that's fighting for this business because really, you know, you're not going to buy it at the supermarket, right? So it, 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 that's exactly it. It's where else can you get this? And and you have to get this because it's it's made by you know it's made by Joe or it's made by Tony or it's made by a uh, Melissa and only Melissa can make it this way, right? Kent, thanks so much. We got to look to wrap up here. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. It's, it's amazing. Your your sort of journey has been great to hear and, and amazing. And, uh, you know, I've sort of heard bits and bobs, uh, you know, since we know each other from before, but um, and also congrats on the exit. Last couple of questions. So 
first one of the last, uh, let's say the last three, sure. I'll ask you is who do you look up to or draw inspiration from? Uh, is there one or two people that along your entrepreneurial journey that you've sort of looked up to that, that have helped you along the way? Wow. There are several, some intimately and some more kind of, you know, know of them. So okay. intimately, I probably want to say my grandfather has been a great inspiration. Okay. Just his work ethics and his, his ambition and vision and, and the fact that, you know, he did so much with so little as well, um, more than I think I'll ever be able to accomplish. So it's amazing to see what, you know, for the lack of a better phrase, hard work and, and a little bit of a working smart and, and, and doing the right thing uh, where, it, where it gets you. Right. You know, I think more of a kind of a, you know, knowing of uh, and, and kind of looking up to not so much on a personal level, I want to say, or, or two people probably, I want to say Bill Gates mm-hmm. and Elon Musk. Uh, those two are, are kind of very just, you know, I think they're probably on a lot of people's lists, but they really are quite exceptional. Right. Iconic. Well, thank you for sharing that. Second to last question is, how do you, Kent Wu, want to be remembered? Uh, you know, when when you're older or maybe you're not around, I mean, you're, you're a serial entrepreneur, you're still, you're just beginning. I mean, you, you've exited one company, you're very, very far into your second, and I'm sure that you're the type of person that will be building companies probably the rest of your life. How do you want to be remembered? That's a that's a great question, Jay. I like I like that one. It's a big picture question. It, I, I would like to be remembered as someone that had an impact, that improved some, you know, either a certain industry or a certain community, or people refer to it as a legacy. But really, it's it's more so they we had a positive impact in a specific space or a certain group of people to a certain group of people, and that's what I would love to to be able to have leave behind or be remembered for. That's awesome. Good, good answer. Um, and the last question is much easier. Is just where can people find you, follow you, connect with you? I'm not sure if you are active on social media or if you have a website that you want to direct people's attention to. By all means. Sure. So I, I'm on LinkedIn. It's under Kent Wu. And mm-hmm. I think you should be able to, to find it or search. If you're looking for the new company, it's milkandeggs.com. You can take a look. Hopefully we'll be spreading out. We're currently only in LA, Orange County, but hopefully this year we're supposed to be expanding out to other cities and other states great awesome so milk and and kent Wu, you're on linkedin great thanks so much kent we really uh I, I had really enjoyed catching up with you and uh and hearing about your story thank you for sharing you know all your uh, all your journey with the audience i think they're going to get a lot out of it so we appreciate having you on the show thank you jay it was it was great being here and it was a it was a pleasure all right thanks I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week.
This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.